Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. In the Gospel according to St. John, um, which we're going to look at today, this is Father Frank Lane, and we're proceeding and continuing with our program, Foundations in Faith. And we, we encounter one of, the, uh, one of the books of the signs in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, there are seven signs that, uh, that Jesus performs in order to manifest his role as Messiah. Um, the first is the wedding feast of Cana, and the sixth is the one that we look at today. And uh, the seventh, of course, is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But in this one that we look at today, this is a story of the man born blind. It's a familiar story to us, but it's really got all sorts of like interesting pieces in it that, that's good for us really to look at. And so it begins with says, as Jesus went along, he saw a, man, saw a man who had been blind from birth. Now, blind from birth in order that, you know, that they, it couldn't be interpreted as kind of some kind of a temporary loss of sight that just naturally came back or, you know, or that it was some kind of a psychosomatic um, blindness, that this is, is truly physical blindness that, that the man was suffering from. So the disciples ask a question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, for him to have been born blind? And this is something that happened with a great degree of frequency. In the scriptures, we know that, um, that all disabilities, moral, physical, all disabilities, are the result of human sinfulness. It lies at the root of the whole disorderliness of, of creation. And so that when Jesus comes, therefore, to forgive sins, he comes, therefore, to restore creation to its, or to its original goodness. So that it is kind of a corporate sense. Um, there, was a, there was a discussion not so long ago <clears throat> about the injustice of original sin. And, you know, how could God just continually mark people's uh, souls with, with sin because our parents, um, our, our original parents, um, somehow or other did something wrong, disobeyed the Lord. But, you know, that's kind of the wrong way to frame that, that observation. That sin in human nature became what we might call in our language a mutation. And we know that for us to suffer from, uh, for us to experience a mutation, that's at the root of almost all evolutionary theories is that we develop through mutation. In other words, the mutation becomes a part of who we are. Um, I was reading something not so long ago that said that, blue, that brown eyes are the normative for the homo sapien, for, for humans. Um, but blue eyes were a mutation that took place. And uh, the result is, of course, that there's a vast number of blue-eyed people in the world um, because they carry with them the mutation of our ancestors. Well, that's the way original sin really is. It's the mutation that we experience from our ancestors. It's not because God maliciously imposes that on us each time a child is conceived. Well, in this mutation, what happens is, of course, is that humanity is prone to sinfulness. 
And that sinfulness, therefore, is the root of all disorder within human society, within the created order. And that when Jesus says that he comes for the forgiveness of sin, that's what he comes to do, is he comes to undo um, this imposition upon creation, this imposition upon humanity. And that's what the story and narrative today in the Gospel of John is all about, is Jesus doing this. So, however, it was common in the popular culture, um, and we see this in the disciples, to forget the corporate nature of human sinfulness, to forget the historical dimensions of human sinfulness, and to say, well, if something goes wrong with somebody, God's punishing them. And uh, so their question is, you know, what did he or his parents have to do for him to be born blind? So they miss the whole point of, uh, of the story of, of, of humanity, and they bring everything then into the immediate, to the particular, and to the surface. Jesus just simply ignores their question, that in time they'll come to figure out. Um, but simply to answer it now gives them information which doesn't mean anything to them. It's like him telling them he's going to rise from the dead. Well, they have no idea what that means. And, um, and so they just go on about their business <laughs> um, being totally and completely um, unaware of what Jesus is talking about. So why would he waste his time? So then he says, actually... Um, this kind of burden of human sinfulness, which is the root of his being born blind, um, has happened in, in the world, and, and now it's here to show what God can do. In other words, Jesus, as the one through whom all things came to be, is essentially the creator. And uh, in the forgiveness of sins, he recreates the integrity of... Uh, of his mission. He recreates the integrity of his original mission as word through whom all things come to be. And so then he says, as long as the day lasts, I must carry out the work of the one who sent me. The night will soon be here when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This theme of the light of the world is extremely significant. We find it in the prologue of John's Gospel. And we find that it, the light is identified with the word. And the light is that through which all things come to be. The word through the light creates. And so him as the light of the world places him firmly as the word in John's prologue. And in placing him firmly as the word in John's prologue places him as the source of everything that is, everything that exists. This is essentially, in John's Gospel, what the light means. It is an identity. It is an identity between the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the Word, creation, Jesus Christ, and through light, all things come to be. It's interesting for us to notice that light is not a created entity in the, in the book of Genesis. It is the only phenomenon, observable phenomenon, that the book of Genesis does not say God creates or makes. God speaks and there is light. And so God's word is light. Um, 
This has all sorts of theological implications for us and all sorts of implications in the, in the whole development and, and, and the whole story of the created order. But that's not exactly our task at this present time. Then Jesus does something else. He spits on the ground. Saliva was thought to have curative powers in those days. And he made a paste with a spittle. And he put this over the eyes of the blind man. And he says to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The early Christian community interpreted this, obviously, in a relationship with baptism. The waters of Siloam were the things that were going to take away the consequences of sin in, uh, in, in the blind man's life. And so that in washing in the waters, once he has been anointed by the Lord, washing in the waters is that which removes the consequences of sin. And so it's legitimate for the early Christians to see this as a baptismal text in John's Gospel. And so the blind man went off and washed himself and came away with his sight restored. So the pool of Siloam did in fact heal the man's eyes. It did remove the consequences of sin. And uh, through the use of external realities, um, that certainly something from the bodily Christ um, mixed with the clay or the dirt from which humanity in Genesis, in the second creation narrative, says we're made from. And then they take that human component um, mixed with the curative power of Jesus and you take it into the waters of the pool of Siloam. You take it into the waters for the early Christians of baptism. And the, those things which are the consequences of sin are wiped away in the life of the newly baptized. So in that small little section, there's a huge baptismal theology for the early Christian church. And then it says his neighbors and people earlier had seen him begging said, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, yes, it is. And the others said, no, he isn't. But the man himself said, yes, I am. So they said to him then, how do your eyes come to be open? He said, well, the man called Jesus, made a paste, daubed my eyes with it, and said to me, go wash at Siloam. So I went, and when I washed, I could see. And they asked, where is he? I don't know, he answered. So here then is a testimony to the community on the powers of baptism um, for the early Christians. And certainly it shows us then the miraculous workings of the Messiah, of the Word, of the one who has been created. And so they say then, they brought the man, who, uh, the one who has created, they brought the man who had been born blind to the Pharisees. And of course here the same thing begins to happen again. And it had been a Sabbath day when Jesus made the paste and opened the man's eyes. So when the Pharisees saw him, how he had come to see, he said, he put, a, how did he come to see? And he said, he put paste in my eyes and I washed and I could see. And some of the Pharisees said, well, this man cannot be from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. And so another said, how could a sinner produce signs like this? And here, here, we, here we do encounter the, the, um, the Pharisees. And uh, in their whole interpretation of the law and the prophets, which has been, and we've talked about this before, it is a shallow surface understanding. They avoid going any deeper into the profound meanings of any of the things 
that that revelation contains, and this is a this is a, a a hazard in all religious faith. Let's just take the practice, and so that we feel good about it, and forget everything that flows underneath it. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did, and this is exactly what Jesus reacts to. Honestly, it's saying, you know, this is absurd. This is absolutely absurd. That of all the depth of all the wealth that comes to us from the Law and the Prophets, and all you can think about is a regulation, a rule. There are times when rules reveal the depths, and rules help us to live in such a way that we have access to the depth. But that didn't happen with the Pharisees. So they're saying since he broke our law, uh, the way that, not, not, not the keeping the Sabbath holy, but we broke the way we have interpreted it, um, you know, then therefore you are a sinner. And, uh, well, then they started, then they disagreed among themselves. Well, if he's a sinner, how can a sinner, you know, take away the effects of sin in someone's life? And uh, that whole thing, a house divided against itself. So they spoke to the blind man again. Oh, what have you to say for yourself now that he has opened your eyes? And the blind man says, he is a prophet. And this idea of Jesus as prophet is part of the part of the developing understanding of the Hebrews concerning who is the Messiah. Many, as you recall, when Jesus asked the apostles, "Who do people say that I am?" Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. In other words, many are beginning to say, "Well, he's a prophet. So what more might he be?" However, the Jews would not believe that the man had been blind and had gained his sight. So now they've decided, since they've entered into this dilemma that they know they can't get out of, they simply deny the reality that's in front of them. And so they send for his parents. They want some more testimony. Is this man really your son who they say was born blind? And if so, how is it now that he's able to see? And his parents answered, we know he is our son and we know he was born blind, but we don't know how it is that he can now see um, or who opened his eyes. He is old enough. Let him speak for himself. Well, <clears throat> the problem is, we're going to see this, that the parents are afraid. They're afraid because, as we see in the next sentence there, who had, um, his parents spoke like this out of fear of the Jews who had already agreed to expel from the synagogue anyone who acknowledged Jesus as the Christ. And so this is why the parents said he's old enough, ask him. So, so this, is the, this is the thing. Anyone who acknowledges Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, the Jews say, we will exile, we will excommunicate you from the synagogue. Now, in our day and age, we can say to ourselves, if someone feels righteous or justified, I've been excommunicated, um, I'll go about my business. But you couldn't do that in these days. The community was too closely united to the synagogue. It was, it was too small a world for that to happen. To be excluded is more like being like the Amish shun someone. You're cut out of your whole way of life. You're cut out of everything about yourself. And that you have no longer any roots, any social support systems, anything like that. And so the parents were afraid of that, of being excluded. And it has economic consequences. No one can do business with you, etc. So the parents said, well, ask him. You know, don't, don't put us in this position. 
So the Jews again sent for the man and said to him, Give glory to God, for our part we know that this man is a sinner. We know that Jesus is a sinner because Jesus violated the Sabbath. He didn't violate the Sabbath according to the law and the prophets. He violated the Sabbath according to the rules of the, of the rabbis. And so, but the man says, well, I don't know if he's a sinner or he's not a sinner. I only know that I was blind and now I can see. Very basic, fundamental, there it is. And, um, and they said to him, well, what and how did he do that? So now they start the interrogation all over again. Well, the man basically says, I already told you that. Do you want to hear it again? Is it because you want to become his disciples too? Recognizing, now the man has not formally become his disciple. That's to happen later on in the gospel. But he is acknowledging the fact that many have become his disciples. He said, do you want to join this group? And at this, they hurled abuse at him. And you can be his disciple. They said, we are disciples of Moses. And we know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And so they're saying now, you know, that, no, we're followers of Moses, and, and this man has broken the law of Moses, which he hasn't, of course. Um, and, and so, therefore, he's a sinner, and we're righteous, and we don't want to deal, deal with the facts in front of us. We just want to deny them, want you to deny them, and let life go on without being changed. So, but the man born blind is emboldened by this. Well, this is astonishing. He has opened my eyes, and you don't know where he comes from? <clears throat> this idea of where you come from is huge in the Gospels. Um, we know that Jesus is often dismissed because, well, we knew his mother and father. We knew his siblings, or his cousins, his clan. And so how could he be anything extraordinary? Again, the local person is not really usually seen as a hero. He's, it's too commonplace for us. And, uh, but then the man goes on and he said, well, but we do know, you say he's a sinner, but we know God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the devout who do his will. And so he can't be a sinner and open my eyes. He can't be a sinner and do away with my blindness. That's just not possible. And so he said, ever since the world began, is it unheard of for anyone to open the eyes of a man who was born blind? If this man were not from God, he couldn't do anything. And so then the Pharisees become, they're frustrated because they have no response to this, really. So then they say, are you trying to teach us? Are you a sinner through and through since you were born? And they drove him away. How many arguments end like this? I can't, I have no response to what you're saying, so I will simply get mad at you and dismiss you. Um, think about it. How often does this take place? All you have to do, honestly, is watch one of those dreadful news programs where people scream at each other all the time. Arguments never change anybody's mind. And so Jesus heard they had driven him away, so he went to look for him. And when he found him, he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? One of the titles, the messianic titles. Sir, the man replied, tell me who he is so that I might believe in him. And Jesus said, you are looking at him. He is speaking to you. And, uh, and actually, in the firm translation, he says, I am speaking to you. In other words, he uses that Johannine word again that is associated with the identity of Jesus as the voice in the burning bush. 
And so the man then says to him, yes, Lord, I believe. And he falls down and he worships him. And Jesus said, it's for judgment that I have come into this world so that those without sight may see and those who with sight turn blind. In other words, he has come now to judge those who receive the Messiah and those who do not receive the Messiah. To receive the Messiah is to see. We just have a tendency to say to see with the eyes of faith. To not be able to see, even if you can physically see, but your heart is blind, um, then you stand under the judgment of the coming of the Lord. So, hearing this, some of the Pharisees who were present said to him, we are not blind, surely. In other words, we certainly couldn't be talking about us. And Jesus said, blind? If you were, you wouldn't be guilty. But since you say, we see, your guilt remains. In other words, if you didn't know any better, you wouldn't be guilty. But if you do know better, and you choose, as in this argument with the blind man, we can't answer him, so we'll, get, we'll insult him. We can't respond to him, so we'll throw him out of the, out of the synagogue. We'll do, we'll do all these kind of things, anything but respond to the things that he's saying, anything that, but to respond to the truth that the man speaks. And so Jesus then does not back off, and he, in fact, accuses them and says, you are the ones who say you see, but you see nothing. You are the blind ones. You have taken the law of the rabbis and replaced the law of Moses with the law of the rabbis. And in so doing, you have diminished the power of revelation and your capacity to see it being fulfilled before your very eyes. Well, as we take this now, the sixth sign in John's gospel, as we take this gospel and, and we, we look back um, and we can see actually a paradigm of our own lives, of our own world in which we live. We know that there is a growing hostility to Jesus Christ in the world in which we live. We know that growing hostility denies reality. It denies, for instance, the hatred of the church. Certainly the church has sinful people in it, and certainly we have been afflicted with that sinfulness in the modern age. But you know, years ago when all this started, there was an article in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, of all things, by a, a man who, who was Jewish, um, somehow attacking um, the Plain Dealer for trashing Catholicism by going back and pointing out everything that the church has done for humanity through the ages. And it really kind of was a dramatic article. And it's something like this, that all the good that is done, the modern contemporary secular world chooses to close their eyes to that. The first hospitals, the first orphanages, the first time, the first education of women, the, uh, the first higher education of, of Western humanity um, since the collapse and fall of the Greeks. Um, all of this kind of thing is, is the work of the church. Um, the developments in music, in art, in architecture, all of the things that feed the human spirit, that feed the human soul, all of it came from the church. And, uh, and yet, someone will say, you know, well, you, you are flawed. And because you have sinners within you, you yourselves then are not legitimate. That Jesus is not legitimate because some of his followers sin and sin grievously. That it is the argument of the Pharisees. 
And if you try to come back with anything, you know, that says, well, what about this or what about that or what about something else, there is no response. There's simply a dismissiveness of it or a reinterpretation of it as some kind of oppression or some kind of misuse of power. It's absurd all the way through it. And so, and yet, this is exactly what this man in the gospel encountered. Those who were righteous, those who had made their own decision about life, about the depth of human beings, all of this kind of thing, and then reject when in fact the truth of the Law and the Prophets is manifested to them through the person of Jesus, when that actually transpires and that actually takes place, then they simply deny it or turn around or become angry and abusive or, or throw you out of the company that they're in. There's no room for you here. We don't want Christians here. We don't want Catholics here. Um, we would rather vandalize your churches and insult you and all of this kind of thing. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really kind of um, very, very interesting. And it's, it, it is a story that in a way is really ageless. And in its agelessness, then it becomes for us too almost a mirror of a world in which we live and a mirror also that we might look through ourselves to find what is in us that does not accept the Lord and where are we in this journey of life with Jesus in our midst and those who deny him all around us. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.